Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my final podcast on John the Baptist. During our past two lessons, we have taken a look at John's miraculous birth and his powerful ministry that reached throughout Palestine and even into Egypt and Turkey. We started to examine the political climate during this period of time around 27 to 30 AD when Caesar Augustus was emperor in Rome and we have three rulers who had divided what had previously been King Herod the Great's territory. Two of the rulers were Herod the Great's sons, Herod Antipas and Philip. We also learned that there was a Roman-appointed high priest named Caiaphas, and Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. These people were all very powerful in their own right, but they also had to report to Rome. One of their chief functions was to maintain the peace. Little did they know that a humble young man who lived in the desert and ate locusts and wild honey would soon publicly challenge their morals, their religion, and their very way of life. In our last podcast, we learned John the Baptist has been preaching and baptizing and pointing his followers towards Christ. Even after the powerful experience at the Jordan River, where John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus, we learned that John's mission was far from over. His purpose remains strong to continue to point others towards Christ while acknowledging he must become greater, I must become less. John is called John the Baptist or the baptizer because once he confronted people with their sinful condition, if they repented, they were baptized as an expression of their repentant heart. Their baptism was a public display that they recognized their need for forgiveness. This would essentially be preparing their hearts for the soon coming Savior, Jesus Christ. We also know from the Old Testament that there was a strong belief Elijah would return and prepare the way of the Lord. The Gospels also indicate that many believe that Elijah would come first and then Christ. But John the Baptist flatly denied that he was Elijah reincarnated. Nevertheless, Jesus affirmed Elijah must come first and that he had come in the person of John the Baptist. We learned that John fulfilled Malachi's prophecy but in a spiritual sense rather than a literal sense. Elijah himself was not to return and go about Judea ministering to the people, but instead someone like Elijah was to appear and do this. And that person was John the Baptist. Jesus had this to say about John the Baptist in the gospel by Matthew. Matthew chapter 11 verses 7 through 15. 
As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So Jesus acknowledges the central role that John played in God's plan of salvation. Jesus said that John was the greatest born among women because he had the privilege of pointing to the Lamb of God. In essence, John the Baptist was the last of the prophets, and now Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. John is the conclusion of the prophecy of the law and the prophets. John's ministry was sort of the dividing line between the Old and the New Testament. With the arrival of Jesus came the realization of all of the prophets' hopes. Jesus' arrival fulfilled the law. His was not a new system, but the culmination of the old system. The same God who worked through Moses was now working through Jesus. Now we come to a point in our lesson where after Jesus was baptized, Jesus is starting his ministry, and yet John is still continuing his ministry. We learn from the Jewish historian Josephus that John apparently posed a threat to the current political establishment because of the number of people going to his baptism. Huh. Remember, a primary role of the leaders was to keep the peace, right? And it was probably disconcerting to them to see so many people heading to the Jordan River. Recall that I pointed out that the Jordan River was seen by some as a political hotbed because it represented crossing over into freedom from oppression and rescue by God. Interesting thought, isn't it? Now, here's a bit more political background. Palestine, in Jesus' day, is part of the Roman Empire, which controlled its various territories in a couple of different ways. In the east, that would include Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, the territories were governed either by kings who were, quote, friends and allies of Rome, often called maybe puppet kings, or by governors 
supported by a small Roman army. For Rome, Palestine was important, not in itself, but because of where it was located. Israel, Palestine, is located between Syria and Egypt, which were two of Rome's most valuable possessions. Rome had legions in both Syria and Egypt, but not in Palestine. Roman imperial policy required that Palestine be loyal and peaceful so that it doesn't undermine Rome's larger interests. And so that end was achieved for a long time by permitting Herod the Great to remain king of Judea from about 37 BC to about 4 BC. And they allowed him really a free hand in governing his kingdom as long as the requirements of stability and loyalty were met. When Herod the Great died, shortly after Jesus' birth, his kingdom was divided into parts. Remember we talked about this, that most of the Jewish areas were split between two of Herod's sons, Herod Archelaus and Herod Antipas. The non-Jewish area were assigned to a third son, Philip. As we learned in our last podcast, the emperor Caesar Augustus got rid of his son Archelaus in about 6 AD because he was terrible. He was a horrible leader. And at this point, Caesar Augustus instead made his area into what's called an imperial province. And Caesar appointed a prefect to govern this province and then supported it by a small Roman army of about 3,000 men. So during the time of Jesus and John's public career, that Roman prefect was Pontius Pilate. But the prefect did not govern his area directly. Instead, he would rely on local leaders. The prefect and his small army lived in Caesarea, now, I actually got to visit this place. It's on the Mediterranean coast, about two days' march from Jerusalem. And these are pretty nice digs, oceanfront property. So Pontius Pilate would only come to Jerusalem to ensure the peace during big deals, like big pilgrimage festivals like Passover, when large crowds and patriotic themes sometimes would spark unrest or uprising. But on a day-to-day -day basis, Jerusalem was governed by the high priest, who we learned last time during the ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist was Roman appointed Caiaphas. Therefore, Judea, including Jerusalem, is governed by Pilate from a distance, but the daily rule of Jerusalem is in the hands of Caiaphas, and his council. We learn more from Josephus, that Jewish historian, who writes, and I quote, Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, and then in parentheses, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause, unquote. 
Well, that's a very different explanation for John's death than we're familiar with, isn't it? Josephus, the Jewish historian, kind of brings out in his account a political side to John's ministry as Herod saw it. And we're going to look at now the Gospels because they are going to emphasize a moral and religious side of why Herod Antipas feared John and eventually had him beheaded. We know from the Gospel stories that John the Baptist was not afraid of the religious or political leaders of his day, and he really had a knack for seeing beyond their exterior and kind of deeper into their heart. He spoke truth with clarity and passion. Remember, he calls them a brood of vipers. He definitely didn't live to people please, but simply to preach the need for forgiveness of sins. And he called out Pharisees and Sadducees for what they truly were. We learn that John the Baptist spoke the hard truth to Herod Antipas. Again, one of those four rulers over Palestine. Herod Antipas divorced his first wife. She was Arab. And remember this because it's going to be important later. And then he marries, and this is illegal by Jewish law. Illegal number one, to get divorced, and then illegal number two, to get remarried. He marries Herodias, who is the divorced wife of his brother Philip. John the Baptist said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 14, verse 4. Apparently, it bothered Herod so much that he had John imprisoned. And we'll learn from the Gospels that he wanted to kill him but was afraid of the people because so many considered John the Baptist to be a great prophet. But on his birthday celebration, in response to a promise he had given the daughter of his new wife, John's life tragically ended. We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, starting at chapter 6, verse 17, to read this story. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. 
And once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. Because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Matthew chapter 14, verse 3. Herod Antipas had seized John, bound him, and put him in prison. Now this prison was at Herod's fortress at a place called Machaerus on the northeast shore of the Dead Sea. And if you look at studentofthebible.com, I have an aerial view of this fortress. The castle was about 3,860 feet above the Dead Sea on this hill. And John the Baptist was most likely thrown into a prison that was attached to this castle. It seems that Herod arrested John under pressure because of his new wife, Herodias. We learn from the gospel writer, Mark, that it appears that Herod actually respected John the Baptist and maybe even feared him a little. Yet, in the end, Herod caved to peer pressure from his royal audience and his family. He needed to save face because he made a ridiculous promise. As a ruler under Roman authority, as we have discussed, Herod didn't have any kingdom to give. The offer of half his kingdom was Herod's boastful way of saying to his wife's daughter that he would give her almost anything that she wanted. If Herod really did respect and maybe even fear John, well, then you can imagine how Herod felt when his stepdaughter asked for John's head. But Herod could not face embarrassment in front of all of his birthday guests. There's a lesson here. Our words are powerful. We should use them with great care. And we also see Herod was way more concerned with his reputation than his character. But we will see that Herod is plagued with guilt. When Herod starts to hear about the great following and healings of a man named Jesus, this is what he says in Mark chapter 6, verse 16. Quote, But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. <laughs> Sometime after John was beheaded, Herod's first wife's family, remember I told you she was Arab? Well, her dad is the king of Arabia. And he's so incensed that Herod divorced his daughter that they caused a war. And Herod's army is defeated around 35-36 AD. And this defeat was considered to have been divine vengeance on Herod for killing John the Baptist. Really makes you think, doesn't it? 
So I think we've established John was not a crowd pleaser. He willingly confronted hypocrisy of the religious establishment and the leaders. Luke in 3.19 says, John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done. So it seems from Luke's gospel that John the Baptist didn't hesitate to not only expose the immorality of Herod, but apparently he also points out other evil things Herod Antipas had done. John chose to die a martyr's death rather than compromise his convictions. Certainly John knew you can't publicly ridicule a ruler without some type of consequences. Yet, even in this heartless, cruel plot, John's death was not in vain. For we know that to live for Christ, to speak the truth, to point others to him, it's never in vain. God's call was with John even until death. He lived to point others to Jesus who we know we need beyond anything else in this life. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that while John was in prison, this great man of God had some moments of doubt. He doubted if God was there and he wondered if Jesus was really the Messiah, the one who had come to set us free, then why was John left there in prison? And why was Jesus not setting him free? There are moments like this when I just know that the Bible is true because I would feel the same way, wouldn't you? Here you are in prison and you believe that you've met Jesus and you know what the gospel says about Jesus. You know what the prophets have said about Jesus. And yet here you are still rotting in prison. But... God's ways are not our ways, and it is possible that this life event was perhaps the greatest of what John had lived for. John paved the way for the one who truly sets us free. And even when things don't make sense, even in the midst of suffering, tragedy, great loss, and even in death, Christ is our Lord and King. Here's a Bible truth. No matter what battles we face in this world, there's always true and unending freedom through Christ. He alone is our hope and deliverer. Matthew in chapter 14, starting at verse 13, tells us briefly about how Jesus reacted to the news about John's death. He says in verse 13, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. John the Baptist was known as a wild one, but it wasn't his appearance that made him wild. 
It was his internal defiance against a worldly system of complacency, apathy, and lukewarmness. One of my favorite Bible verses by Paul, I think, sums up the way that John the Baptist lived his life. And that's in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. John's life message was convicting instead of conforming. His life is an example of a life completely devoted to God. John did not conform to the pattern of this world, did he? He was born, lived his life, and died doing what God had planned for him. And although he gave his life for God, he gained immeasurably more than he gave up. For Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. John provides a great role model for living the Christian life. He put his entire life in God's hands and God used him to do great things. Let's make it our prayer to be as faithful in submitting to God's will as John was and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. Have a blessed week and be a blessing to others.